One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories. This is the show that challenges our guests to choose three songs that will always revive a memory and a story, and then use that as the foundation of our conversation about life and music. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is James Priestner. James is the founder and frontman of the Canadian band Rare Americans. Since debuting in 2018, Rare Americans have made a name for themselves with their all-in melodicism and narrative-driven animated music videos. They've released four albums and an EP, and their songs, each paired with a narrative-driven animated video, have garnered them their first Billboard 100 album, a Juno Award for their most listened-to track called Brittle Bones Nikki, more than 500 million streams, and more than 875,000 YouTube subscribers. They choose not to be on a label and describe themselves as fiercely independent. The band just released the first installment of their most ambitious project to date called Searching for Strawberries, the Story of Jongo Bongo. It's one part 33-minute long fully animated musical feature and one part good old-fashioned album that together create an immersive listening and viewing experience. James grew up in Edmonton playing hockey. He was on track to turn pro when he picked up his first guitar and that moment literally changed the entire direction of his life. We caught up with him from his home in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey there, James. How are you this morning? I am fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I had to do the math there. You're uh, out west in uh, Vancouver, so this is still this morning for you, right? It is, yeah. 11, 11.36 a.m. Um, you know, we were just chatting before the show. Um, just We're going to touch on it real briefly. You know, there's a lot of uh, fires happening in Canada right now, but th- is that affecting you at all, or are you so far west that it isn't really directly affecting you? Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, the I was actually I'm originally from Edmonton, Alberta, so I was back back visiting my family a couple of weeks ago, and they have really taken the brunt end of it. There, you know, several several cities or little towns, kind of just on the outskirts of Edmonton, have literally been evacuated. So the the air quality I think was the worst in the world, and you couldn't you couldn't see anything. It was just so dark and smoky. It was crazy. No kids out playing. All football practices canceled. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, pretty wild. It seems to be happening more and more. But uh, right now, at least in Vancouver, it's clear. I pulled up a, a map, a real time map on New York Times about where the smoke is going, and there are even bands now over Florida. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. my girlfriend flew into New York today. And she said it's it's one of the worst air qualities in the world uh, as well today. So just just terrible, tragic. I hope uh, I hope we get some much needed rain. Me too. So you mentioned you grew up, uh, or at least you were from uh, uh, Edmonton. Um, how would you describe the musical background of your childhood? And how long were you there before you wound up in Vancouver? Uh, I was in Edmonton uh, from about age two to 16. Uh, I ended up, uh, I was a a high level hockey player. So I moved away at 16 to play in the Western Hockey League. Um, But I spent, I guess, all of my, uh, you know, my my youth years there. Um, And yeah, music, uh, none of us really played growing up. I didn't have parents that played music or anything, but uh, they were very much music lovers. Uh, my dad, especially, he idolized uh, really great songwriters like Bob Dylan is his kind of hero and Roger Waters. Um, and then my uh, my older brothers were kind of punk rock kids. So they're both much older than me, um, you know, almost a decade older. Uh, and yeah, they really got into the punk scene. So uh, there was a lot of bands like Rancid and Bad Religion and Pennywise and uh, all, all sorts. So I feel like I, I was exposed to uh, a whole bunch of different music as a kid. Uh, and then I think, you know, I kind of found uh, hip hop on my own, which uh, really opened my eyes uh, to just a totally different style of music. Um, and then, yeah, from there, it kind of took off and bloomed in all sorts of things. Okay, I'm gonna take a real quick break. Can you turn off whatever that thing was that binged? Do you have like an email notification or something? Uh, it is, yeah. Um, We're not live, I so I figured I'd just do a pickup here. So if you could. I don't know how to turn that off, though, because I have to keep my speakers on to hear you. Um, Un- understood. Well, then don't worry about it. We'll just deal with it. Okay. 
Um, what about a, a, an early musical memory? If you try to dig back, what might pop into your head if you try to think of something as young as you can? Oof, as young as I can. Um, let's see here. I, I think the one that, that really stands out to me is the, I guess, the story I had for, for one of these songs. So I don't know if you want to if you want to get into that already or, or, or not. We're going to use that as a teaser. Let me ask you a few more questions before we get to song number one. Um, uh, so, you know, your brother, you mentioned you have brothers. I didn't realize you have brothers. You have, but you're, one of your brothers is um, uh, a, f- a fellow founding member of Rare Americans, um, Jared. He's 11 years older than you. So did he and, your, and his, your other brother, did they influence you musically a bunch? Or was that a big enough gap in years that it wasn't that pronounced? Uh, no, I would say definitely influenced me. Um, pretty much everything they listened to, I wanted to listen to. They were kind of big brothers, and at that point, you know, it was it was CDs, right? So uh, the CDs that were were coming home were the ones that I was putting in my, you know, my little Walkman or whatever. And uh, so yeah, or or in the car, I was listening to what they were listening to. So definitely, you know, from a young age, I think they're kind of punk rock. Uh, influence uh, was pretty well everything that I listened to. Uh, and then from there, I think that was kind of the gateway to finding offshoots of that music. Like I remember Blink-182 was a band I just fell in love with that they didn't really like because Blink was more pop punk and they were more like true punks. Um, so, you know, but from that from that moment, I was like, well, I, I've been introduced to this thing called music, so I get to listen to whatever I like, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I would say that, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they really introduced me to a to a ton of artists I would have never ever heard of if it wasn't for them. Uh, can you remember the first time you saw music performed live that wasn't, you know, like like a real concert of some kind? Yeah, uh, I think it was Blink One Eighty Two. Uh, I was I was very young, and uh, my older brother Jared knew that I really liked them, and he was probably eighteen or nineteen at the time, or something like that. And uh, Blink was coming to town, playing at like the. I think it was maybe the, even the football uh, stadium. And he took me uh, to the show. And that was just super, super cool. And I remember Travis Barker had like a five-minute drum solo. And the, his little stage, his drum riser was on fire. It was just, it was crazy. I'd never seen anything like that before. Was at that point in your life making music of your own and being in front of people even remotely on your personal radar? Oh no, not even, not even in the least. I was, I grew up, uh, I was an athlete. Uh, I, my whole life growing up as a kid was sports. I was a, a tennis and hockey player and, uh, I was, I was striving to be a professional athlete from a very young age. Um, real quick, uh, tennis, have you played pickleball yet? I know it's a random question, but it's taking, many, many, many times. It's taking yeah. over the world. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun game. I, I, I see why. Um, it's much easier to get into, I think. Um, you know, if you go pick up a tennis racket and you didn't really grow up playing, it's it's so much harder to even get half decent at the game. Uh, just just the strokes and the spin you have to put on the ball. But with paddle or sorry, with pickleball, anybody can pick up a racket and almost start rallying immediately. So I think it has a broader appeal. And the older you get, it's great because you don't have to move far, especially if you're playing doubles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, what about the first music that you owned that was yours that either you purchased or, you know, asked for as a present? Mm, I remember um, Blink-182, all their records, every single time they'd come out with one. Uh, I remember uh, 50 Cent, Get Rich or Die Trying. Um, I remember <laughs> I, I really wanted that record. Uh, that was kind of when I was getting into hip-hop as a kid. Uh, the Offspring, uh, I really liked The Offspring, and I remember I think it was Americana had come out. Uh, I remember going to the walk into the record store with my dad and getting that one and, and putting it on the kind of the CD player in the garage. And I used to put on the rollerblades and would skate around with a stick and puck and shoot at the net and listen to all those records kind of on repeat. That's fantastic. Okay, well, let's get back to the early musical memory that leads to your, is it your first song or is it not your first song? Uh, no, it was actually the last one, but that's fine. We can go a little out of order because it was a nice uh, transition. Absolutely, uh, we can do that. Continue. 
which is always good. And uh, yeah, this is uh, this is an awesome folk artist named Dan Byrne, who's relatively unknown, I would say. Um, but my brother Colin ended up. My brother Colin, he was uh, he was a songwriter himself, uh, and uh, he. I don't know where he found Dan. I think it was maybe through the the local newspaper was was doing some articles, and I think Dan was on Sony or something at that time. This was at like the height of of his probably popularity, at least in in media. Um, and I think we we bought the record, or Colin did, or he went with my dad, got the record, and just absolutely fell in love with it. And um, so from there, Colin was quite good at the the internet at that time. Like he had a a wrestling blog and he had, you know, he was just, he was just kind of an early adopter of finding his way around the internet. So he somehow got in contact with Dan uh, and just told him, you know, he really idolized him. He was a young aspiring songwriter. He wanted to learn from him, yada, yada, yada. And so I think on the next tour that Dan had that was coming near where we lived, they actually met uh, and then they ended up becoming really great friends. And, um, you know, Dan almost became a, a bit of a family friend uh, and he's also Dan is also a tennis player, uh, and both myself and my brother Colin are tennis players. So we even we hit with Dan lots of times, and uh, went to a tennis tournament with him. And anyway, it's it's become kind of a cool cool kind of friendship. Um, but uh, I remember very early. This is again probably one of my first concerts ever. Um, Colin got the opportunity to open up for Dan at this little club in in Edmonton, our hometown. Uh, and it was 18 plus, um, it was no minors. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I loved my brother Colin's music so much and I loved Dan's music and there was no way I was going to miss this show. So I kind of begged and pleaded and said, I need to go. Is there any way possible? And my dad is, is a super cool guy. And he's like, all right, we're, we're going to find a way to get you in. Um, and he got Colin to give me his ID, even though Colin was the <laughs> opening, the opening artist, I had his ID just in case. And I was so young. I was like, I don't know, 12. Um, so we didn't think that, you know, that was going to work, but it was a backup. I maybe looked a little bit older for a 12 year old. Um, but anyway, I ended up going at, uh, right around sound check before they really even cared or looked. they just probably assumed I was going to leave. Uh, and then I ended up kind of hiding out, uh, in like the back room until the venue kind of filled up and Colin got on stage and I kind of snuck out and, uh, found my way kind of to like the front row and Colin played a great set and Dan came on after and just put on this unbelievable performance and he saw me kind of just, you know, hanging in the front row, obviously totally out of place being this little kid amongst the room of adults. And he just looked at me and he's like, lay low, little buddy, lay low. <laughs> uh, and it was so cool. From that moment on, I was just like, wow, this, this guy is the, the coolest guy in the world. Why did you pick this particular song? Uh, I think it was just the first, um, you know, one of the first songs I heard from Dan. Uh, and uh, I think it's it's just unbelievable storytelling. Um, he's just, he's, he's such an almost poetic writer in a way that he can really bring you into the environment um, of, uh, of his songs. Uh, and that's something that I think, almost inadvertently, I think I took a lot of inspiration from, or at least myself and, and Jared as songwriters, um, took inspiration from his just narrative approach to storytelling. Um, so yeah, that, that was a song that kind of just hooked me. He played it live. People were singing along. And uh, yeah, I, I really loved it. And it's it's called Jerusalem. Well, I am so happy to be able to play it on this show. I have known of and sort of known Dan since 1999. Oh my God, that's and, unbelievable. And he actually uh, was a guest on this show about three months ago. We drove up to Tampa to record with him in U at USF. And Jerusalem is the first song of his that I heard. So this is like full circle. Love it. Wow, man. Well, that's so crazy. I bet no one else has said that before. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I emailed him this morning to let him know that you were going to be on the show. And he, I think he underplayed it. He said, cool big fan of them <laughs> that's hilarious yeah he's he's been doing a bit of work with my dad actually too um my dad has been working on this uh this screenplay and uh, i think dan has been helping him punch up some of the dialogue and stuff as well too so. awesome awesome well let's listen to this then this is uh james priestner's first song on this week's episode of three song stories this is jerusalem by the one and only dan Byrne from his 1997 self-titled album you ever get to share a stage with Dan? 
No, no, I haven't. Um, I, I've seen him play several times, but I actually, the, I wasn't even an, an artist the last time I would have seen Dan. Um, I, I wouldn't have even probably started my musical journey. Um, it's been, been quite a while. Huh, fascinating. When you started learning uh, to play the guitar, which, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't until you were like 19 or something, um, were you, did you learn any Dan Byrne songs? You know, they're fairly accessible. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I Need You is a song I really liked. Um, I remember I heard the live version from like, a, it was a radio, uh, I think, show he did maybe in Florida. Uh, and uh, it's it was an, such a good version of the song, and I remember learning that one. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to run into him again. I'm sure I will. It's, it's just been years. Well, you should send him an email because he's a big fan of your band. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I, I will. I will send him a text for sure. So when you were, um, you mentioned when you were growing up, you weren't a, a, a musician at all. You were an, a, you know, a sports person. Um, did you do anything in high school that was, you know, like were you? Did you do band or theater or anything like that, or were you just the sports? You know, you were a hockey player and did some play in tennis too. Yeah, I was playing at like a really like quite a high level. So it was my life was literally like from pretty much grade seven onwards, I went to like a sports school. So we, we did like the four core subjects from eight till noon every day. And then I was on a tennis court from one till 4 p.m. every afternoon and hockey practice in the evening. So um, it was a pretty, pretty interesting, disciplined uh, lifestyle for a, for a youngin. So yeah, mostly it was sports. Um, I always loved music. With It was a part of who I was and was listening to music constantly. And I, I always kept like a kind of a diary or a journal. I always really like writing my thoughts out. I always thought was the most kind of therapeutic uh, way to kind of get through things. Um, but it wasn't until I was really playing in the Western Hockey League and I was probably maybe 17 or so at the time and I was living at a Billets house or a host family that some people call it and uh, when I wasn't at the rink, you know, we had curfew every night at like 9 or 10 p.m. So I had uh, quite a bit of time and I, uh, yeah, that's when I, I got a guitar and just uh, started learning on my own and um, I very, very quickly wrote a song, which was kind of the the craziest thing i was probably i'm pretty competitive with my brother colin uh and he was a he was a songwriter so there was probably something uh you know subconsciously where i was like well if colin can do this i can do this uh and then yeah very quickly wrote a song and just instantly was like floored by it and then sure enough week over week over week i was just trying to every single week make sure i could i, I wrote a new song and i pretty much did that for the whole year and um, that was pretty much the end of my hockey career. I just became absolutely obsessed with with music, and um, I pretty much retired uh, from sports right after that. And I think all my friends and family thought I was crazy, uh, but I, I don't know. I just had this gut feel that I, I, I really liked this thing, and I felt like I, I could do it. I felt like I had a somewhat of a knack for it, even though it was pretty early on. So you were still playing hockey at a very high level and you could have continued on that track and still made this decision to change course. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, for sure. There's I could have easily gone and uh, probably gone and played some level of pro somewhere, whether it was Europe or somewhere in America or whatever. But no, I uh, just kind of fell out of love with it quickly as soon as this was introduced to my life. Did it feel like kind of, I don't know, uh, like a relief to not have so much demand on your time? Because I know that must just have been super time consuming between practice and games and travel to just think about creating on your own terms. Um, yes and no. I guess the one thing about when you're playing, um, you know, in a very established league, it's it's a big part of your identity. Um and that was probably the toughest thing for me is once I was out of the league, I kind of had to make a new identity for myself. Uh, and at that point in time, you know, saying, oh, I'm an artist or I'm, it just felt like imposter syndrome to the max because I wasn't really an artist. I was I'd written three songs. Or you had declared like, yourself artist. <laughs> yeah, I was playing like, you know, some open mics and stuff. So I, it, felt, it took a really, really long time for me to kind of feel comfortable in the identity of calling myself a songwriter or an artist. Um, so I don't actually think it was easier. It did buy me some more time. Um, and I actually 
what I did is I, I worked for, for a summer. I sold cars uh, and saved up uh, enough money, and I went traveling. I went backpacking um, and kind of went all around the world, and uh, that really, really opened my eyes to just seeing all these different cultures and ways of life and different art and food and culture, and I think that solidified my you know, desire to, to pursue this, this part of my life um, and kind of put my sporting career behind me. Did you travel with a guitar? I did. Yeah, I went all over. I went to India, went to all over Southeast Asia, went to Europe. I took the guitar everywhere. Did any of those songs you wrote over the course of that first year or so make it further into production or on any of your albums now or anything like that? Not um, not with Rare Americans. I had a band before this called The Lunas, um, and we were playing you know, some of those songs, especially kind of live before we'd even really gotten into recording. Um, but not, not since Rare Americans. That was kind of, a, I would say, a new phase of my, my life or my uh, career as an artist, so to speak. So when you pivot from hockey at that level and your friends and family think you're crazy, how long was it before you started doing something that made them think maybe you weren't crazy? I would say a good five years, probably. Wow, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, a big turning point was... Uh, I, I took a trip to the Caribbean with my older brother, Jared, and uh, he is 11 years older than me. He's a, he's a businessman. He uh, is just in a completely different, uh, you know, area of the world uh, to me. And uh, he's, he holds a, you know, his opinion holds, a, carries a lot of weight, I would say, in our family. Um, and so anyway, we took this trip together and uh, it was almost like somewhat of a reconnecting trip in a way. And uh, I, I wasn't sure what we were going to do for, for 10 days and spending our time. But I, I brought uh, my guitar and kind of joked to him, hey, like, let's try to, try to write a song, you know, drink a beer or two, whatever. And uh, he's, he's always a big thinker. And he said, write a song. He's like, screw that, man. Let's make an album. Uh, and I kind of laughed in the moment, like, ah, it's not that easy. But sure enough, that we spent 10 days literally just writing songs. We probably wrote about 15 songs, and most of that became the first record. And uh, he was just so excited about this because he'd never really done this before. And uh, I think it was on that trip that he was – I remember him saying to me, like, wow, I, I kind of thought you were kind of screwing around or whatever these last five years like meandering a little bit but i he's like you're, you're very good at this i i didn't i had no idea kind of thing uh and i think that that kind of was the turning point uh that i guess a maybe a respect kind of grew um uh, for me in pursuing this um and and really that was yeah probably the the biggest turning point of anything how did you guys uh, record and produce that first album? Was that just all on your own, uh, you know, dime in your own equipment and stuff? A couple of ways, actually. We uh, we got back and we had all these iPhone demos. And you could hear the crickets in the background and the ocean waves and stuff. They were very charming. Him and I just belting these songs out on the porch. Um, and we wanted to record them quite quickly. At that point in time, I had just finished going to audio engineering and music production school. So... I had, you know, kind of demoed them out on my laptop and then we wanted to kind of get a full band and record. So I took a, one of the, the members who I played with in my previous band. His name is Lubo. Uh, and then we found uh, really the closest available studio time that we could get. And it was the studio out in Maple Ridge uh, in, in just outside of Vancouver. Uh, and we went and actually recorded the whole record uh, pretty much start to finish. I think we had 12 or 13 songs, but... Um, we just felt like it could be better than it was once we started to get some of the mixes back and how they sounded. We just, we thought we can, we can beat this. Uh, we don't want this to be our launch into the world. So um, that we did for pretty inexpensive. Uh, but then I think we realized we needed some expertise and some help. So uh, I started searching and looking for uh, producers and uh, ended up finding an agent who represented a bunch of producers that I liked kind of in the, the indie-ish world. Uh, and then one of the producers on that guy's roster was Joe Ciccarelli. 
who had worked with uh, the Strokes and the White Stripes and uh, all sorts of great artists. Uh, and I, I, I was like, hey, this guy is going to have no, he's got five or seven Grammys or something. He's like, this guy's not going to want to work with us. Um, but sure enough, I sent over our iPhone demos to his agent and I got a call like 24 hours later and he said, wow, Joe just absolutely loves uh, the raw energy of these demos. And he really, uh, really digs the project and would really like to do it. So uh, that was that was a total surprise to me. And then the next day uh, he called me and we chatted and he just I think he liked the kind of the cheeky raw energy of them. Uh, they weren't polished at all. Uh, and then we made a plan to uh, go record. So we recorded the first record just outside of Seattle um, at Bear Creek Studios, which is an amazing studio, uh, just maybe 30 minutes out of Seattle. And at that point, we didn't have a band, really. We didn't have a rhythm section. So um, Joe was like, he said, well, I can get any session players you want, really. Like, usually I'll just, whatever, use LA guys or something. And I was like, ah, I don't know. If we're, we're doing this in Seattle, he's like, I, I kind of, I, I want like a band vibe. Like, band guys, like, my favorite band in the world is Modest Mouse. Like, I know that it, most of them live in Seattle. Like, do you think you could reach them? And he was like, okay, let me see. So, you know, I'm, I'm, it was a pipe dream. Uh, and then sure enough, like a week later, he's like, so I got, uh, I got Eric Judy. Uh, he is totally down, excited for the project. Wow. He's the bass player, bass player of Modest Mouse. Uh, and, uh, and Joe Plummer, who is uh, the, the drummer for the shins and was the former drummer of Modest Mouse. And he's like, they're locked, they're loaded, they're super excited. Uh, I got this email from Eric Judy, who was like, James, I uh, heard these demos, really stoked on them, working on them right now, really excited for the project. And I just remember being like a wide-eyed, like wet behind the ears, like I'm like responding like, thank you very much, Eric Judy. I'm really <laughs> excited that you're a part of the project. Like I almost just couldn't believe it. Uh, and then you know funny enough like maybe four days or something before we were set to record i got a message from eric that he he got a hernia and he needed he needed immediate surgery um so he had to pull out unfortunately um but joe uh had played in a band with yuki matthews who's the bassist of the shins who was a seattle guy um so he came and filled in so they were our rhythm section uh and it was so cool like we learned so much from them and just that whole recording with uh, with Joe and just seeing his process, and uh, we just we could just tell we were we were with professionals, uh, and it was it was a really cool experience and just very eye opening um, for a, a young artist and you know uh, you know young kind of aspiring producer so to speak um, to go through that experience and and that turned out to be the first record and I think uh, we did a great job I really will always it'll hold a special place in my heart. Uh, we're going to do your second song here in a second, but um, as that was all coming together, was the imposter syndrome diminishing or intensifying? Oh, intensifying, man, <laughs> intensifying. Like, but you can't be like, I also had heard like from so many people and seeing my own brother Colin go through this experience where you go and you get in a room with a producer and now you're scared to give your opinion and, you know, you think that you know, you're inferior to them and everything that they think is the way that you should do things. And then all of a sudden your record, you've lost your record. It no longer is, has you anymore in it. So I was very much aware of that and I had no fear. So I was very much, I would say in control of the direction and I had no fear in saying, I like this, I don't like that. Um, Cause ultimately I think it has to come from an artist, uh, you know, their, their vision and what they want their record to sound like. Um, so I, I think that it was Joe is very good at working with me in that regard as I was learning and and just our way of communicating musically. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a great experience. Uh, that's cool. Um, let's do song two now. Do you want to do the Modest Mouse song uh, next or do you want to do the uh, the other one? Yeah, let's do Modest Mouse because that's uh, I just mentioned them. So that's another kind of uh, another segue. All right. Well, uh, you want to tell a story? You want to listen? How do you like to go? Sure, we'll tell a story again and give a bit of context. Um, this is Dramamine by Modest Mouse. And if I had to pick one band that's probably like my favorite of all time, I would say it's it's them. Um, I think that uh, Isaac Brock is just somewhat of a 
mad scientist, a bit of a genius. I feel like he's the kind of guy like I have, I have no idea, but they say never meet your heroes, so to speak. And I, I don't know. I feel like he could be one of those guys or something. I know he's a little bit, he, he's got a, he's got a reputation for being a, a little bit of a, a wild child in a way. Um, but I think that both lyrically, uh, he's, he's so solid, uh, as a singer, I think like a vocal coach would probably think that he's not a good singer, but I think he's the best singer, like his raw kind of just energy that he brings to things. Uh, and then I think as a, as a guitar player, I just absolutely love his, his use of ambiance and all the delays and effects that he uses in his guitar tones. And, um, you know, and this song, uh, it just invokes such a feeling um and i'm i'm someone who usually writes a lot of lyrics to songs and one thing i like about this song is it's like five and a half minutes or something and it's like i don't know 15 lines or something like it's he's just very succinct but that it doesn't matter you kind of just get encapsulated by the feeling of the song um, which is most important and uh yeah this is uh i was this really brings back kind of you know moments in my life when i was playing in the western hockey league i was playing um I think for the Kamloops Blazers at the time. And uh, we were on a road trip and, you know, we had a really tough coach. And after a loss, you know, you, you could have an eight hour bus ride back back to Kamloops. And when you lost, there was there was no talking. There was no, uh, you know, no watching movies on the TVs. It was very much you had to kind of sit and sulk in silence, which I think is not the way that you know, you should approach uh, coaching, in my opinion. But I mean, that's that's a totally different conversation. Um, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things that when you're you're just going through the plains of Alberta or something and it's it's dark outside and, you know, there's nothing for, a, a, you know, thousand kilometers. You just have this overwhelming sense of sadness. And sometimes when you're sad, you almost crave going deeper into those emotions. Um, and I find that this song can kind of trigger that introspection in a way. Uh, and I used to love just listening to this song on repeat when we were in those moments. And it just sparked a lot of thoughts as, you know, am I doing what I really want to be doing? Um, is this who I really am? Is this the life I want to be living? Am I meant to be uh, in this area of the world with, with these people and, you know, on a team like this? Or should I be doing something different? Um, and it really was just, shows like the power that music can can have on our inner selves um and yeah i, I will kind of never forget that time period of my life and i think that a lot of modest mouse songs especially this one kind of really trigger that for me well, let's listen to it together imagining you on that bus uh listening to it on repeat um this is drama mean by modest mouse from their 1996 album this is a long drive for someone with nothing to think about kind of ironic there it's james it's james priestner from the band rare americans second song today here on three song stories this is biography through music You've put out five albums now uh, with Rare Americans, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe there's a, a there's a new album coming with the new film, if that's right. Yeah, correct. So my question is, um, you know, you make songs now that you know lots of people listen to. Can you imagine, you know, some kid on a bus coming back from a hockey loss listening to one of your songs on repeat? And how does that make you feel? Oh man, that would just be one of the coolest things in the world if. You know, in time or whatever, someone puts out something and gains, you know, a little bit of traction and they say that one of their influences was Rare Americans. Like, wow, that would be, uh, I feel like passing the passing the baton, so to speak. Uh, and that would be a, a great, great honor. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. We're, uh, I feel like we're still almost brand new. I feel like we're kind of just getting started. But Well, you've got that one video with 80 million views. That's not nothing. Yeah, no, not, not nothing at all. <laughs> not, yeah, nothing to slouch at, for sure. At that point in time when you were listening to that song, that was still like years away from you starting to make music, if I'm not mistaken, right? Years away, yeah. Wow. Um, okay, so you've kind of told the origin story of Rare Americans. Um, how would you describe, you know, like your music? I've read you described it as crooked pop. Can you just kind of, for our listeners who don't know what you make, just try to describe it as best as you can? Yeah, this is always the tough one. Uh, it's I, I don't know. Music these days is so genre blending that I feel like 
you could put the blanket term of we make alternative music, but I feel like now if you look at like the alternative charts, it's like everything from Billie Eilish to Taylor Swift to Imagine Dragons to people relatively unknown. So it feels like uh, it's almost too broad. Um, we call it like crooked and catchy or crooked pop because, um, you know, it's. I, I think one thing we always try to do is to have – uh, be very solid melodically um, to make sure that things are singable and uh, and you know they're they're easy enough to digest uh, for people. So you know I think that's that kind of pop punk punk background where you know simple ish melodies that that can kind of get earwormy and stuck in your head. So that's something that I definitely always pay a big attention to. Uh, and then I would say the crooked side of things is more. Lyrically, um, I would say we write very far from pop music. Um, you know, mental health, I think, is a big one that we talk a lot about. Um, kind of the story of the underdog or talking about, you know, people coming from very difficult backgrounds or dealing with drug abuse or we just don't really stray away from any of the tough subject matter in the world. Um, that's something that we've been passionate about since day one. Um, and something that we probably would never give up because I think that's what makes us us and that's what we care probably uh, the most about. Um, so I would say that's where kind of the crooked side comes in. Um, explain for our listeners sort of the, well, not sort of, the actual deep connection that your music has with animation and the videos that you produce. Yeah, so at the, when we did the first record, um, we wanted to make some videos. We wanted to have like a really solid launch of this project. So we know we wanted to make, you know, five, six videos. Um, and one of them we thought animation would be cool because we saw uh, a video by Killer Mike named Re uh, the song's called Reagan. Uh, and it was a super, really cool animation. Um, and so we ended up tracking down the animator director of that project. Uh, his name is Harry Tiedelman, uh, who's from New York. Uh, and yeah, we ended up reaching him through Vimeo, actually. He was so hard to find online uh, and sent him the song and he really loved it. We sent him kind of a rough concept and then uh, he took it and kind of ran with it. And he came up with this masterpiece, just an unbelievably talented guy. Uh, and then we um, I produced the other kind of four or five videos that we did, which were live action um, you know, Vancouver's got, they call it Hollywood North. Uh, so there's a huge film industry here. Uh, so I knew a lot of people in the film world. And so I had kind of, you know, uh, uh, produced all of these videos. Um, and then we, we put them out and, uh, I'd say cats, dogs and rats, the animated one, just, just some combination of the, the animation, the storytelling, the music, it just really struck a chord. It seemed like with people, especially from the comments and, and whatnot. So, um, we decided on the next record, let's, let's commit more to animation and see what happens. Uh, and the other thing is, is, um, producing your own videos is a pain in the ass. Like, um, you know, getting together all the crew, the locations, the catering, the insurance, the, just every element of it. It's just a huge, huge undertaking that it has to work perfectly or else, uh, it, it doesn't work at all, so to speak. So, um, with animation, it was much easier. We could write a treatment for something, send it off to the animation team, go over some style frames and whatnot, and then bam, like you're almost finished. Uh, it's on them to really take it and run with. So, um, yeah, for the second record, we had Brittle Bones, Nikki, Milkman, and Ryan and Dave. We committed to three from this Canadian company. Uh, and uh, we put them out, not really knowing, you know, what to expect. And then sure enough, uh, you know, Brittle Bones Nikki just absolutely took off. Uh, and that was the video you were mentioning there with 80 million some views or whatever. Um, and so from that point on, we said, okay, we're we're going to commit to this lane of animation. And we have done that ever since. Has the further you've gotten into committing with animation in any way started to change your approach to making the songs? A good question. Um, I would say up to this point, no. I would say it's always been song first. Um, but we worked on this massive project, man. Holy smokes. It was 24 song, double album, 90 minute feature length musical film uh, that was going to come out next year. Uh, and that we're about 65% of the way through animating right now. 
Uh, and that project was written with the animation in mind because it was written truly like a concept record from the first song. So lyrically, you know, getting the plot points, the character emotions, um, you know, we, we really took it from song one and wrote it in chronological order, thinking with the animation and what's going to play out on screen happening at the same time. So uh, that was a hell of a project, still is. We're not, we're obviously not finished it. Um, but that was, I think, the first time that we'd really like, written specifically with the film in mind um up until that point it was more trying to just write the best songs that we could and and then matching the the visuals to whatever the song narrative kind of was is that project that you're talking about searching for strawberries or is that something that's coming after that something that's coming after that well tell us about searching for strawberries then so this one was a little bit uh, hodgepodge, I would say. Um, it's almost like I was asking myself, to, uh, do I admit to this or not? Uh, <laughs> we, had we had recorded like 24 songs uh, in late 2021. Uh, and a couple of the songs were directly kind of inspired by our bassist Jongo's kind of life story where, you know, he worked for IBM. He was a financial analyst and trying to climb the corporate ladder, had a good salary, job security, but um, just in his heart of hearts, he just didn't like it. He just was not, he didn't feel fulfilled at all. So he ended up kind of taking a leap of faith and he quits. And then he went on uh, the Santiago de Camino in Spain, which is like a 900 kilometer pilgrimage where people walk, you know, kind of soul searching, looking for direction in their lives. And he brought his guitar on that walk and that kind of changed the course of his life forever. And that ended up is the reason he ended up in Canada and met us and joined the band. And it was this crazy story. So, um, you know, a few of the songs were directly about that experience. Um, and then when we were making videos for, you know, for the album, uh, just kind of the idea came and said, Hey, you know, what if we make this our first kind of longer form kind of piece? Um, we already have these songs directly about this experience. Can some of the other songs that we've recorded kind of work to tell his story and the emotional beats that he was going through um, through this experience? And uh, kind of just put pen to paper and, and did the exercise. And it, it turned out that it actually worked out really well. Um, so we said, OK, I think that we can actually reverse kind of fit this to tell this story uh, and, you know, it won't seem like it was a total force fit, so to speak. Um, and that was always kind of the, the biggest concern. But uh, I think, you know, if people didn't know what I just revealed, they probably wouldn't know. They would probably think that um, potentially it was written for the project. Does the next one that you alluded to, the 90 minute one, uh, have a name yet? It does, but I don't want to give that away yet. <laughs> okay, I had to ask. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that when you and your brother went on that trip, with, which was kind of the origin story, he was, I think you t described him as a businessman. Did he leave his businessman world to be in the rock and roll band with his younger brother or not? No, not at all. Um, we have a, like a longstanding family business for over 30 years uh, that, that my dad started and uh, Jared uh, runs our family business. So uh, definitely not quitting his day job to go on the road full time. Um, but however, him and I work very closely and uh, are pretty much in constant communication. And uh, we, we try to get together when we're not on the road, try to get together once every month or two and, and uh, brainstorm and, and write songs and, and just kind of shoot the Understood. So your parents didn't have a second son that, that they thought was going off the rails. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. We, we all turned out okay. My parents were a little bit of uh, loosey-goosey parenting style, I would say, which I think is really cool. It was kind of like, here's the rope, kids. You know, it's your choice what you do with it. Um, and so I think that really, you know, my dad is a real independent free thinker, question authority, question what people tell you. That was um, you know, a, a lot of the ethos of who he is. Uh, and I think that he kind of instilled that in all of us. Um, before we get to your third song, let's talk touring. Um, you've done a lot of touring in the last few years. You've been all over the United States or, you know, a lot of places of, of Canada, of course, England, uh, Europe. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, touring. Holy smokes, man. This is a, an aspect of my life. Uh, I felt like I was prepared for because playing hockey, I was traveling constantly to play. Uh, obviously, you know, every week we were traveling to different cities to play. Um, but touring is just a different beast. Um, 
So we hadn't actually ever toured really at all until a year ago. And then we didn't really know what to expect. We put our first tour on in America, which as a Canadian band is, uh, it, it usually doesn't work that way. Usually if you're a Canadian band, you start and you tour Canada seven times before you go to America, it seems like. Um, but we took a very global approach to the band right from day one. Uh, and so we had built kind of our main audience was in America. So we decided to put an American uh, tour on sale. Didn't know if we were going to sell 100 tickets, 1,000 tickets. Um, and the whole tour sold out before our first show. Uh, there wasn't one ticket available. So that was one of the probably the most probably the most proud moments I've had from this whole project um, up until this point. Uh, and then we kind of kept the train rolling. So we, we did that tour. Immediately we went to Europe. Uh, and then we decided, hey, since we blew out the first American tour, let's let's put another one on sale. Uh, and so right when we got back from Europe, pretty much we were back for just a couple of months. And then we left again for uh, for a full second two month U.S. tour. And then again, couple month break and then right back to Europe for a full tour. So it was pretty much four tours uh, in one year. Uh, and I think by the end of the last one in Europe, which we just got back from a month ago, um, I could just tell fatigue, mental fatigue had really set in for everybody. Uh, and I think we just learned how much of a grind touring is. And while I love playing the shows there, it's so cool to meet all the fans and connect with them. Um, you know, I, I want to be much smarter about touring moving forward, um, just to preserve, I would say all of our longevity and our mental health and, um, just to keep us fresh and, and really still, um, you know, loving doing this. What's the, uh, what's your favorite venue that you've played so far, if you've got one yet? Uh, Meow Wolf was pretty cool in New Mexico, just purely from a venue standpoint. I don't know if you've ever been there. There's a couple of them. It's it's almost like a, it's like a circus. Uh, Did you say Meow Wolf? Yeah, it's called Meow Wolf. Is that like uh, and, a cat meow in front of a wolf? Yeah, exactly. Okay, and okay. You, you got to literally just look at pictures. It's like it's like um it's like an exhibit, like an art exhibit. So you walk in and it's like. Uh, you walk into what looks like a kitchen and then you open up the fridge and now you're in a jungle. Uh, and then you walk into the jungle and then you go through a tree and now you're in Antarctica. Uh, it's just like this crazy art exhibit. Uh, and then the stage is all part of it. So all of these trap doors and these lights can all hook into your own lighting rig. And it's just like one of the most unique venues I've ever been to. Um, so that one was pretty damn cool. You have a dream stage to play on at this point? Ah, dream stage. Um, ah, Red Rocks would be pretty damn cool. Um, I think that that's just like an iconic kind of, you know, lay your hat on a real good career if you can make it to playing there. Um, but I'd say my immediate goal is to play like, you know, even the Commodore in Vancouver, which, you know, we've we've played whatever 600 cap or 650 club and and that's in, at least in Vancouver and that's kind of the next size up here and it's one of the most famous venues in Canada and it's it's literally just down the street um so I would say that that's one that I'm you know I, I believe in kind of winning at every level I think that's a sports thing um so now I feel like we've played a lot of shows at the 250 a lot of shows at the 500 I feel we're very good and comfy in those situations now it's time to the next tour to be at a thousand plus um that's kind of where i have my eyes set and then you know after that then we'll look to the you know the red rocks of the world cool um all right let's do your third song which was your first song but we've been flexible so how would you like to proceed with this eminem song uh, okay so this is uh eminem i feel like uh in a world of you know two minute and 15 second songs these days i'm picking five minute songs uh so this is a bit of a you know blast from what the past used to be like um but this is yeah lose yourself by eminem and I remember just hearing Eminem as a kid and just I could not believe you could be the biggest artist in the world and uh, literally have protests in the streets against your music and saying the things that he was saying. It was just such an eye opener for me. And kind of a, an entry point into Eminem was, uh, you know, being a young kid and going to the, the movies with my two best friends at the time um, when our parents were kind of first starting us, letting us go to the mall by ourselves and uh, I don't know what movie we went to, but uh, Lose Your or sorry, uh, Eight Mile, the movie Eminem's movie, came on as the trailer, and Lose Yourself was the song, and we all just looked at each other. We're like, "Oh my god, we have never heard anything like this before." 
and it was just extremely profound at how powerful the music and the vocal delivery and the lyrics and and everything about it that that is just Eminem. Um, and that's why he's one of the best artists of all time. And that was really like an entry point into, um, you know, all of his his discography. And uh, I think that he's uh, he's someone who's definitely had an impact on my musical career for sure. How old would you have been when you saw that? I think I would have been at the time around 11. Wow. Well, let's listen to it. Uh, this is uh, James Priestner's final song here on Three Song Stories. It's Lose Yourself by Eminem from his the soundtrack to the 2002 movie Eight Mile. This is Three Song Stories. When was the last time you listened to that song closely? Long time, long time. I was actually kind of just reading the lyrics uh, along as, as the song played. And wow, man, he's just uh, such a good lyricist. And he's like, he's so original and doesn't sugarcoat he's not looking to cater to a specific audience or algorithm or whatever he was just that's what i love about eminem man he just he was a true artist it was it's him and it's what he thinks about the world and i I have a lot of respect for that do you listen to that song or songs in general differently now that you're in the business of making them oh it's like it's killed music for me in so many ways. <laughs> film, film too, because I work on these projects so much that it's like it's just it's like you just you can see behind the glass, you know. Um, you know, food a little bit too. Working, working in food a little bit. It's like it's it's interesting. On one hand, it's amazing because you have such a deeper knowledge of these things than ninety nine percent of the population. But on the other hand, it's 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 hard just to be a fan. Um, without comparing and, oh, that's interesting that he made that decision. Or if I go to a concert, I'm like, oh, is he playing with a backtrack there? Oh, that's interesting what they did there. Oh, that's a good moment maybe we could take into our show. Um, It's like your head is just constantly has monkey mind. You can't just uh, enjoy. Uh, But one thing I have to say is when uh, I do, an artist does come along where I don't think about those things at all. And it's purely like my primitive brain reacting to something in an emotional way. Then I know it's like, oh, I'm into this. Like um, a record that just came out by a band called Co-Defendants. Um, I that it did that for me. Uh, and uh, check him out. Uh, it actually it's Fat Mike from uh, No Effects. I know he's got a, a whole history of, of of issues and and public uh, you know mishaps, but uh, he's undoubtedly an extremely talented guy. Uh, and he produced this record and launched this project for. Uh, for two guys called co-defendants and and that record is the freshest thing i've heard in a long time and i was just pleasantly uh just listened to it and i wasn't thinking huh um all right we're gonna head in toward a landing here are you ready for a speed round oh boy i'm ready um do you have a nickname that stuck over the course of your life that you'd be willing to share jamesy boy jamesy boy when was the last time you bought music that had physical form couldn't even tell you. Do you do karaoke? Ah, uh, only if uh, I am forced into a situation. What would be your go-to karaoke song if forced into it? Probably Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. All right. If you were a championship wrestler, James, what music would you enter the arena to? Wow, what a funny question. I could just only think of like Mick Foley coming out or something and just like got that kind of like larger than life type of personality. So I think I would try to go with like not as serious, but a little bit more like uh, cocky funny or something. What would your wrestler name be? Oh, I, I, I'm Jamesy Boy, man. I, I got to go with Jamesy Boy. If you were a cocktail or drink of some kind that a bartender made to represent you, what would it be? Uh, something fruity-ish, like a a strawberry fizz coconut something with gin. Is that what the hockey players are drinking these days? No, man, those guys are (laughs) hardcore, but I'm not. I'm much more like, uh, uh, I don't know, I like, I like colorful things. I like, I like a lot of flavor. I like, um, you know, I, I like, yeah fruits i i'm not i'm not super hardcore in those regards i have a slight i would say feminine 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 how do i say that word femininity uh to me uh that that's just that's just who i am was that always an underlying current and as an athlete did that 
was that something that you kind of had to keep hidden? I would say so. Yeah. Um, like I wouldn't call myself, um, like I'm not overtly flamboyant or anything like that. I would just say I lean towards things in life that aren't as uh, hardcore. Um, and I would say, yeah, that definitely, you know, I was a goalie in hockey too. So, uh, you automatically are the outcast of the team, no matter what. Um, I don't know if you know hockey at all, but it's like you're playing a different sport as a goalie. Um, and I really always felt like I was very different from my teammates. Um, you know, I was really interested in listening to obscure music and, and reading books. And, um, I felt a lot of the guys on my team were, uh, they just didn't vibe with that really. They were, you know, they loved to play video games with each other. And, you know, I tried to buy the video game kind of system and play with them, but it just, I just never really connected in that regard. And I think I always felt like, um, you know, an outcast amongst my peers. Hmm. If you had to guess, what would you say is the song you've listened to the most times in your life? Oh, holy smokes. Um, good question. Uh, well, I mean, this is biased probably because of like age. I'd almost have to look at a song like Modest Mouse, like Dramamine or something because I got into them so young. But another one I've listened to so many times is... Uh, First Day of My Life by Bright Eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Love that song. I played on the guitar. I like to cover that song sometimes, and I've, I've listened to it thousands of times. Huh. Um, song you wish you could hear again for the very first time? Um, a song I hear again for the very first time. Um you know what? This is this is silly, but I'd like to hear Brittle Bones Nikki for the first time <laughs> because it's I, like I never. I would just be so curious on fresh ears to be like, is this going to be the uh, song that gets eighty million views on YouTube? And I would just love to just sit down and like, you know, try to be like yes or no. I'm glad you brought that song back up because I watched. I listened to the song. I watched the video, and it reminded me of the TV show Wayne. Have you seen Wayne? No, but a few fans have mentioned this in comments, I've noticed. So I think I better watch it. I think your sensibility would really love Wayne. And, uh, and it's, it definitely reminded me of Wayne. Um, any songs you'll avoid listening to? Not really. No, I'm not really uh, like every turn, like genre or something that like triggers a memory. Uh, mostly triggers a memory, but also just, you know, if there's any songs that you'll just always hide from because you hate the genre or the, the, the band. No, I wouldn't say I'm like too rattled by like memory in that regard. Um, uh, and I know to me, a good song is a good song. Um, I don't I, I don't it could be any genre, really. It doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, I probably steer away from like super hardcore type stuff um, or super pop. Um, but I can like you know, any number of pop songs or I love Turnstile. They're a little bit more hardcore. So I'm, I'm pretty open to me if a, a good song is a good song. Uh, this may be a random question, but I think maybe not. Are you familiar with the name Moxie Fruvis? No. Oh, okay. They're a Canadian band from the early 90s that made me miss grunge. Okay, I'm going to write it down right now. How do you spell that? M-O-X-Y-F-R-U-V-O-U-S. Okay. Got it. All right. I'm going to check them out. If you could broadcast a song into the head of every person on the planet simultaneously and it couldn't be one of your own, what would it be? Holy shit, man. How, how is one supposed to answer that question? Uh, it has to be a song like about hope or something. Um, is there any songs about hope that come to mind for you? This is your question, James. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm sorry. I'm on the spot. This kills me. Okay. Well, then I'm going to change the rules and let it be one of your own songs. Which okay, of your okay, songs? Okay. How about this? Something like uh, Imagine or something by John Lennon. That'll work. Um, do you listen to albums still or do you listen to music piecemeal like most people seem to now? No, I'll listen to an album for sure. To me, it's like if I hear, I get introduced to one song, like Co-Defendants that happened. My brother sent me uh, one song that uh, they'd released as a single and then really liked it and saw they had like one other song at, this, at the time, really liked that. So as soon as I saw the record, I, I listened to it front to back several times. What would your 14-year-old self who was still playing hockey, you know, intently, think of who you are today now? 
I think he'd be pretty proud. Yeah. Um, and I, I hope he would, he would cut him some slack, uh, a little bit. I'm, I'm super hard on myself. I'm, I'm extremely competitive person, a very driven person. I, I want to do well in the world. I want to impact people. Uh, I want people to, you know, take some hope and courage, uh, and belief in themselves through our music. And, you know, I think a 14 year old me, if he looked and saw, Hey, we just, got back from Warsaw, Poland, and had five or 600 diehard fans screaming our tracks back, I, I think he would be like, holy smokes, man. Like, I, I could not even dream that up. Yeah, because you weren't even, like, playing the guitar yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wild. Okay, well, it is time for you to recommend three people that you will share this with that you think we might be able to get on as guests someday. Okay, I'm going to go with, um, uh, firstly, the band Pup. Um, from Toronto, Ontario. Have you heard of Pup? I have not heard of Pup. Okay, Pup's killing it. They're like they're playing, you know, probably fifteen hundred cap clubs all over the world. Um, sold out almost every night. They're uh, they're a punk band, uh, and yeah, become a little bit of a family friend as well. Uh, and yeah, just just a really really great band. They have what like four or five records now. Um, and yeah, just all around great Canadian band. They play like, you know, they're just a solid punk band in a genre that wasn't overly popular when they started getting popular. Uh, so I think that's, that's really cool. And they're almost trailblazers in a way for that. Uh, and yeah, big fans of them. So I think pup for sure. It's P U P. Okay. And so then you can share this with them and then I guess they can pick one of them to join us if we do it. Yes. Likely can do. Okay, cool. That's one. Uh, I would say Ren, uh, who is just kind of popping off now uh, on YouTube. Uh, and Ren is, uh, he's an English guy uh, who writes a lot of, uh, he's like a classically trained uh, guitarist. And so he does these songs where he kind of plays like these inner two characters in his head and uh, for him, it's it's largely about mental health, kind of the devil and the angel, so to speak. And he kind of acts out these characters in these almost live kind of videos that have started getting millions of views. Um, and so he's starting to really kind of pop off right now. Uh, and I think he's extremely talented and also someone who's, again, just like similar to that Eminem thing. Like uh, he's just not playing for the mainstream. He's He's just doing whatever he wants as an artist, and people seem to be connecting with it, and I think that's really cool. Awesome. Uh, so Ren is one, and I think I'm going to go with um, The Beaches. Um, and they're also a band from Toronto, uh, and they're starting to really take off. They're uh, two sisters. They're an all-female band. Uh, they've started getting a lot of Canadian radio play in the last two years, uh, and now they're they're starting to to tour and play uh, some successful shows kind of throughout North America. Uh, and they actually just had a song get in the viral fifty, so that gave them a big bump as well. Uh, and I think they're uh, they're cool. They're I think they're only going to continue to grow. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it's cool what they're what they're doing. Awesome. Well, we have always had this goal of getting big in Canada, and I and I'm not kidding. Um, we've had uh, you probably don't know who these people are, but uh, Toronto-based singer-songwriter Shauna Caspi, um, uh, David Newland, who's also from Coburg, south south of Toronto, and um, and uh, John Brooks. Do you know John Brooks by chance? No, I don't know. I'm over like three there. Okay, yeah. Well, this is the singer-songwriter or the the folk music world, so I'm not sure. So you're helping us branch out further than that. But um, can I add, can I add one more then? Um, sure. No, why no. not? Okay, I'm breaking the rules today. Uh, another am amazing Vancouver artist who's actually opening for the Lumineers right now on their tour is uh, his name's Dan Mangan, uh, and he's been kind of a staple in the folk festival scene in Canada. He's got a bit of a following in Europe. Um, really wicked dude. Uh, he's from Vancouver, and this was a big opportunity to open for the Lumineers. Uh, so he's another Canadian artist I think would be awesome to talk to. He's a, he's a kind of a really high intellect and uh, very good for a long-form discussion. Awesome. Well, if you can do anything you can to help us connect with them, it would be fantastic. And I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave us with? 
Oh, no, really. I appreciate these kind of, uh, you know, longer form interviews. And I really appreciate uh, you doing your research and, and just and, and knowing about us. And uh, I think that's always super cool. I feel like in, in this world, there's uh, a lot of media, I can tell, just kind of regurgitates a blurb that we wrote on a press uh, release. And uh, those are always the ones that I'm just like, ah, you know, and then and then something comes along where someone like yourself, who's clearly put a lot of thought and research and a lot of heart and love into into what you do. And uh, those are you know always my favorite kind of you know opportunities and conversations to have. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you for saying that, because that is what we try to do. And great. You know, best of luck to you and, and Rare Americans. I, I feel like you guys are going to continue on an upward trajectory. So it's a great, great job so far. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope you have yourself a great day. For this week's Parting Tune, we're going back one year to episode number 225 guest, Janine Zeitlin. She's a journalist for USA Today Network Florida and is producer, writer, and reporter of The Last Ride podcast, which you should check out if you have not already. Her first song, Conversation Piece by David Bowie, takes her back to her senior year of high school in her small rural town as she wandered past cornfields contemplating her future. I grew up on the back of a cornfield on a lane. So if I wanted to walk anywhere, you had to walk on the road around cornfields. So I would put it on my disc man. It was like my senior year of high school when I was thinking about leaving home and heading to college. So it takes me to that time period when I was just walking a lot because I had a lot of anxiety about leaving and like also wanted to kind of resolve things too and figuring out who I was as well it was a time period when I was figuring out who I was and where I wanted to go and I connected with the lyrics um he talks about you know walking (laughs) so (laughs) that's the start but also you know I'm, I'm a thinker not a talker and just not being able to express himself verbally and you know I I felt like that was who I was at that time too and I still struggle with that I'm at my core I'm an introverted person so it takes effort for me to be extroverted or even to express myself but I was able to express myself through writing we make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers Florida Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer Tara Calligan is host and online content producer our production assistant is Jared the intern Gonzalez Christophus is executive producer and our theme song was made by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete Keep listening.